Christmas, wherever you may be, from Saul David and me, Patrick Bishop. Well, as promised, we thought it'd be a nice idea for the Battleground team to produce a special episode as the year closes to have a look at some of the standout military history books that have come our way this year and to talk about them and the wider stories around them. The idea is not to give a detailed critique of the books in question, just to use them as a starting point for a discussion and let the talk flow. Yes, indeed. So to help oil the wheels, we've got two guests with us who also happen to be friends. Jesse Charles is an expert in 16th century British history, the winner of numerous awards, and her latest book, The Siege of Loyalty House, A New History of the Civil War, which was a Times, Sunday Times, Guardian, Telegraph, Spectator, The Critic, and Mail on Sunday Book of the Year. Good to have you with us, Jesse. And alongside her, we've got Richard Foreman, a very old friend of both of ours. Richard started out as a bookseller in the Leadenhall Market branch of Waterstones, but that was not going to detain him for long. He went on to found a publishing house and also founded the London History Festival and generally became what you might call a history entrepreneur, as well as writing historical novels himself. Welcome, Richard. Uh, Evening, everyone, and uh, happy Christmas. Okay, well, now the uh, introductions are done. Our glasses are charged. Uh, The mince pies are in the oven. So stand by to wassail. I'm going to start off. Uh, I think looking at two books which uh, came out this year, but Colditz, uh, the castle in Germany, where the Germans sent their naughtiest prisoners of war in the belief that it was escape-proof, which, of course, it turned out not to be. Uh, one of them, the first one to come out, was by a guy called uh, Robert Cake, and the other by the more famous Ben McIntyre. Now, this is a peculiarly British obsession, isn't it? Escape stories, the Colditz story alone has produced... I think, dozens of books over the years, to the point where even back in the 1970s, one reviewer groaned, is there no escape from Colditz? So here we go again. I've got quite strong views about uh, about Colditz and the general sort of British war story, but I wanted to start off with a question for Jesse. Jesse, if you, by some strange chance, found yourself incarcerated in a World War II prison war camp, would you try and escape? Oh... I would like to think that I would. I was sort of a bit of a tomboy when I was younger. I like the idea of it. I probably would be incredibly craven and and wouldn't. If everyone else had done all the hard work and I could just sort of follow on their tail, I might I might give it a go. But otherwise, I think I'd be too cowardly. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I think the thing to do was to kind of make out that you were helping the escape that <laughs> would actually kind of going down the tunnel to hold back and say, no, I'm, I'm going to give my, my chance to someone else. You know, I'm going to do a noble <laughs> thing and then sit back and then sort of learn another language or study for the bar or medicine or something like that. Exactly. Like a lot of them did. I mean, most people didn't try and... It was only a tiny majority, in my view, egotists and sort of uh, attention seekers who did this. Do you think, I mean, do you think sort of people that you don't expect to be brave shine at times like that or is it as you say the ones you suspect or does has anyone surprised you just i can't believe they did it well jesse i suppose the surprising thing was that they were so varied you got all types represented there many nationalities not just the brits though you wouldn't know that from the literature Uh, you also had poles dutch french americans etc i mean some of them were egotists but i think uh, another motivation was guilt take airy neve for example the first british officer to escape from Colditz, he felt guilty at having not made much of a contribution to the war. He was captured very early on in Calais in, in 1940. And I think he was driven by a kind of desire to make amends by escaping and 
and getting back to the war effort, which he did very successfully. It's very much as I haven't, I didn't have the privilege, thank God, to have gone to a British public school, unlike Thorpe. <laughs> so maybe it seems to be... And Jesse. Uh, oh, course, yes, well, here we go. So it seems to be like a sort of nightmarish sort of version of... Uh, a British public school life. What, is, that, is that how you see it? So? It's why they say that the officers always coped the best when they were incarcerated because it reminded them of boarding school. And, you know, I've never been incarcerated, but I have been to boarding school, albeit from the age of 16, which I think was the same for you, Jesse, was it not? Actually, I, I went to boarding school at 11, but um, with girls, are probably more flexible, and probably softer and kinder. But one of the things that I know we're going to discuss this in a bit more detail, one of the things Ben McIntyre brings out so brilliantly in his book, Colditz, is the almost homoerotic atmosphere there is, uh, there was in some of these prisoner war camps. And I can tell you it was exactly the same at boarding school. And, you know, some people took that one step further, but that sort of general air of, you know, of bonding, of male bonding was, was very much Col- one of the Colditz was advertised as ample fourth on heat. Uh, but, but I mean, Ben makes the point in the book that it was the officer class that were only allowed to escape. They, they got the permission to, uh, partly because if they did so, uh, there was no risk of them being shot. Yeah. There was, there was, you know, very little risk to them. Well, there was eventually, of course. I mean, after the famous great escape, um, where the Germans really uh, changed the rules of the game and, and executed, I think 50, wasn't 50, it? 50 yeah. out of the 76. With the RAF. Patrick, that's right up your alley, so to speak, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that happens in this book, I think, uh, it, well, I, I, of the two, I prefer Robert Kate's book because it actually tells you something I didn't know much about before. And he's very good on the whole subject of, tre- of treachery. The book isn't so much about Colditz as it is about a guy who was sent in there by the Germans to try and find out, you know, where the tunnels were sort of thing. Um, so for me, that that was that actually shed quite a, a lot of light on a different, interesting dimension of the thing. Whereas the, the McIntyre book is, you know, repackaging a lot of, the old stories in a very, you know, brilliant McIntyre sort of way. Um, but what I got from that was um, that really, you know, it's not actually terribly interesting, the story as, as just as a story, because it's basically people digging holes in the ground. One tunnel is pretty much like another one. And, uh, and, and you end up, you know, with a kind of rather repetitive sort of uh, trope going through the whole thing. But sorry, to get back to, to the kind of people who star in this cold story, one of them is, of course, Douglas Bader, the famous legless World War II fighter pilot, who has had a pretty easy ride, I think, until now. But in this book, McIntyre does us a service by actually revealing what a four-letter fellow, as they would have said. Well, uh, I think at the end of the book, he he calls him at times a a total hero, but a complete bastard at other times. And I think that is starting to eke out in other books now that Douglas Bader was assist with the bleep button. Richard, what did you think of the Colditz book by Ben McIntyre? You've admired some of Ben's other work. Yeah, I mean, I've read quite a few of uh, Ben's books. I mean, I think he's a bit more comfortable uh, chatting about spies rather than soldiers. But there are kind of enough eccentrics uh, and, let's face it, egomaniacs uh, locked up for him to have a bit of fun with. Uh, And one of them does, does include Barder. I mean... There is, a, at the end of the book, he, he basically, you know, what Bader did sort of after the war and the sort of legacy of Colditz. And and most of these anecdotes involve swear words. Uh, but one of them was, he you know, he met up and he went to Germany with the... Um, he found himself at dinner with, like, Luftwaffe pilots. And his comment was, I thought we shot more of you bastards down during the war. <laughs> he was pretty blunt. 
Uh, and, you know, he would definitely be, even now be given a safe conservative seat for some of his politics. But yes, not the most pleasant human being in the world, but uh, interesting nonetheless. Now, just a quick point about uh, Ben. I've just come back from a conference in New Orleans that Ben was also attending. In fact, he was the keynote speaker. And he had the rather tough job of speaking after dinner to 500 Americans who were all pretty well versed in the history of the Second World War. I mean, it was a tough audience, in other words. And by the end of his talk, he had them absolutely eating out of his hands. And the Americans, generally speaking, are not that given to... British stories, and the Colditz is a particularly British story. Let's not kid ourselves. There might have been the odd Canadian. Maybe there were American or two there, but actually it's a British story. Um, And it was amazing how he framed it. So I haven't read the book yet. I'm going to this weekend, actually, because I'm chatting to Ben next week. Uh, But if his talk is anything to go by, I suspect it's a pretty good read. And I I bet the American audiences don't drink quite as much as well. You can't oil them up so easily. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. And the other problem with after dinner speaking, as I'm sure we all know, having done it occasionally, is you can't drink yourself until you've given your talk. And if you make the mistake of, of having a few classes, which I did many years ago in the Reform Club when I was talking about my previous book, Zulu, I got up and I used to pride myself on remembering my talk in a one I completely forgotten it. It just went out of my head. And from that moment, I'd done two things. I'd never drunk before I sp- spoken and two, I've always had notes just in case. Really? I always, I, I like to have a glass before I speak. I like, I like to do the evening chat talks rather than the lunchtime ones because, yeah. I like, I like, don't you, Patrick, like a glass? Well, I'm afraid, uh, unlike Saul, um, I do actually have a couple before I stand up. Yeah. And I think it actually does make things go a bit more smoothly. So do and I. Often you, if you've got your notes in front of you, um, you find yourself, you know, going off piece often to great effect. Well, that's how it seems at the time. <laughs> So let's move the discussion on. Jesse, tell us about a book you particularly like this year. Oh, there are so many. Um, but I'm going to go, we'll sort of stick to my period and say Leander Delisle's biography of Henrietta Maria, which you might not think is a military history book, but actually anything in this period, uh, and I'm talking sort of early modern period, 16th, 17th centuries, which is my sort of remit, is military history. I mean, the, you know, war is a constant cloud. And of course, Henrietta Maria um, was queen, the wife of Charles I. So she was there during the Civil War. And not just there, she was she was known as the She Generalissima. That's what she called herself. And, and she was, the, the Roundheads really feared her and her influence, not only over the king, but in Europe as well, where her family and siblings were. So she was very formidable. And I, what I love about Leander's book is she ties in the European context really well, but also just sort of just shoots down all these these stereotypes and all these tropes that have sort of that have been barnacled to Henrietta Maria's reputation. I mean, she's a very maligned queen, and um, it's just a very human biography, and and puts the Civil War in context in terms of, of how women experienced it as well. So I think I think bravo, bravo to Leander de la. Yeah, that that sounds like you know a major reappraisal of a historical figure, which is always interesting and good. And there's one. I think you've read this one, haven't you, Richard? I haven't actually read it, I've just read the reviews, but about you know, the founding father of the SAS, David Sterling, who a major kind of uh, yeah. demolition job done on him. Uh, well, it, it's a reappraisal, but unlike uh, Leander Dulal, who was 
in a sense, put uh, Henrietta Marie centre stage and, and redeemed her reputation a bit. Uh, Gavin Mortimer, in a sense, is out to debunk uh, The Phony Major, uh, which is basically a, a biography of, of David Sterling, as you say. Although a large part in debunking David Sterling is to praise Paddy May. Uh, and that's at the crux of the book. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a hatchet job. He uses a scalpel. I mean, Gavin Mortimer has spent the last sort of few years writing this book, but he spent 20 years immersed in, you know, the SAS lore, if you like. And he's, he's produced his best book. Hopefully it's his best-selling book. Uh, and it's a big one for sort of fellow historians and military historians like you guys, where... It's, I mean, it's a game changer, really. And I mean, I, I would recommend, you know, your audience, but also other historians to read it because they, they'll they come across as a, a bit silly now if they don't reference Gavin's book. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is interesting, isn't it, all Because we both know that behind the uh, facade of uh, the SAS's reputation, which is that they're completely brilliant, they're all super, all rest, we both know that, that people in the military take a, a, a rather different view. And this book actually... Uh, in a historiographical sense, starts the process of reappraising the SAS, I would say. Yeah, and I think um, most of the listeners know I'm slightly biased towards the SBS, having recently written their Second World War history. And I think this sums up the essential difference in nature between the people who go into the SBS, that is our special maritime force, and the SAS, who are kind of land-based. Their skills are very similar, but the difference is that the SBS really hide their light under a bushel. As they put it, there's a kind of wonderful quote in their handbook. We take a more discreet approach. While some prefer the limelight, we prefer the twilight. Now, uh, Sterling preferred the limelight. Not only did he prefer the limelight, he made up a lot of stuff. We know this from Gavin Mortimer's book about his career to build himself up. Mm. I, I suspect he was in, uh, I think you hinted at this, Richard, he was in competition with Maine. He felt overshadowed by Maine. So he had to exaggerate his own feats. In fact, we now believe that the term the Phantom Major, which was alleged to have come from the Germans in the Second World War, was actually cooked up by Sterling and his biographer uh, in the 1950s. So, you know, he began to curate his reputation and here's the kicker, only after Maine's uh, sad early death in the early 1950s. Pretty much uh, as the, uh, the the baked funeral meats went cold, that was when <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, David Sterling made the call to Virginia cows almost. And it's basically, it's, uh, you know, it's a, not a celebrity biography, but it, it, it was, you know, a sort of put-up job, really. Sorry, Jesse, I was about to ask you about something about how... You know, weird it is really that the, it seems to me, as someone who's, you know, clearly a man, it must be strange to see people like Paddy Mayne sort of celebrated as, as, as these sort of uh, iconic masculine figures when, even to my eyes, a man of a certain age who's been around the military a lot of his life, he seems to me to be more of an sociopath than someone to be admired. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think that's the experience through all the ages, isn't it? I, what I find really interesting. And not just Paddy May, but also just all the spies that get written up. And how does this work? How do you write a biography of, or of an operation or a spy or an institution when so often the sources are basically neither confirm nor deny? I mean, how, as you say, it's so much as apocryphal. So how, it, what kind of um, checks and balances do reviewers or fellow historians have 
with these later folk. It's, I think, and it's troublesome. I mean, in terms of the Gavin Mortimer book, I mean, he's basically been interviewing lots of former uh, SAS personnel for years, you know, uh, and he was able to get this... Yeah, yeah, no, on the on the record, and and before the in a sense this generation uh, passed, but it is just their view. Although there is a certain amount of weight of evidence and shared view of what David Sterling was like, and also uh, Paddy Main. Uh, but it, you know, in terms of fact and evidence, uh, it's still a grey area. I find it bizarre. It's really a lot of interwar years. There are a lot of people who wrote their memoirs, who, and like the Lockhart plot, for example, in Russia, and. and how much they give away. And you think, haven't you signed away the secrets? And was, isn't there a sense of honour that you should not be talking about it? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head, Jesse, because it's not, you know, technically no one who's worked for the intelligence services or the special forces for that matter are allowed to speak. Uh, but some do. So the question is, how do they get away with it? And the reality is, I think it does come down to honour, actually, because the Official Secrets Act might make you think you're going to be prosecuted, but we know from the Spycatcher case in the 1980s that although they tried to stop the book coming out, it was published in Australia at the mm. same time, and therefore, you know, they eventually dropped the action here. You can buy Spycatcher. That was written, of course, by an MI6 officer. So I think that's the point. I remember having a chat with Eliza Manning and Buller, the former boss of MI5, and asking her, would she ever consider writing her memoirs like her predecessor, Stella Remington, had done? And she said, absolutely not. For that reason, you know, what, why would you work for an organisation like that and then spill the beans, even if you were trying to be vaguely careful years later? So it's really down to character in the end. And I think both special forces and uh, intelligence services, you get the odd rogue who is prepared to talk out. Going back to the SES, just briefly... Quite a lot of them have spoken out, and very few from the SBS, including including the boss. You know, Peter de la Billia. He was the head, and he actually broke the code. He was the one that started this avalanche of SAS books. You know, I mean, you, if you look at the literary history section of any bookshop, I mean, about half the stuff in the contemporary section is various. You know, uh, Bravo seven two five. You know, they've run out of kind of acronyms and numbers yeah. and. Letters of the alphabet. Now. I mean, as, as, sorry, as, as a counterpoint to that, though, there, there's the story of a- Asa Briggs, who I think it was in the 1970s, uh, confessed to his wife that uh, I, I worked at Bletchley Park during the war. And then she said, oh, so did I. I mean, there, 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 uh, there was for large swathes of people. There is still yeah, a culture yeah. of a matter. Thirty years later, and in fact, the story of, of Station X, Bletchley Park, didn't come out until the nineteen yeah. seventies. Absolutely astonishing. This game, you know, yeah, winning yeah. organisation. We really didn't know the truth of that for thirty uh, it wasn't years. Someone who'd actually worked. There was someone who was actually a messenger, essentially, who carried the product to the various committees that were uh, what was the what's the indoctrinated? I think is the word yeah. used into the secret. The ultra secret. So yeah, different, different ultra ton, ultra more. Is it? I suppose it's a bit like if someone. It's an avalanche, isn't it? As you say, if someone starts, it's like retweeting praise on Twitter. Like I would never do it, except then I see Saul doing it all the time, and I kind of think, <laughs> oh, like, I want people to know about my book too. You're lashing out now, Jesse. You're better than that. In Saul's defence, he pays someone to do it. <laughs> I can't be there all the time. It's, like, it's not my fault. But, but going back, I think some of this is, is due to what we're saying in things about Sterling, for instance. It's ego and vanity that will compel them to tell their story and shape history and the narrative. You know, a lot of soldiers, as you know, you read enough military history, they're, they're egomaniacs. 
Wait, well, I'm, I feel conflicted about this because as a historian, I, first of all, I want to tell the story. So I'm very keen for people to speak out. And secondly, I'm also a great believer that almost in freedom of information that eventually this stuff needs to come out. You know, it's, a, it's the Americans are very good at this, I think. They are much less kind of secretive paranoid, if, if that's an expression, that we are in this country. Now, I know there's always a justification for keeping things quiet, but the Americans say, do you know what, sooner or later it's going to come out. So, for example, their Navy SEALs, nothing secret. We know all about Neptune's spear, which was the operation to kill bin Laden. It all comes out immediately. And yet, anything post-1948 in relation to our special forces, complete blanket closure. And that's too long, in my opinion. No, it has the opposite effect, doesn't it? Because it, what it means is you get all this sort of stuff, fantasy stuff coming out here, there and everywhere. And they don't, you lose control of the narrative, which is a kind of very 21st century way of looking at it, but much more important from our point of view as historians. It muddies the water to the point where you really have to keep delving and away and digging and sifting to get to anything like the truth, which is really what's happened with this whole SAS story. It's only, we've still got all these different, you know, conflicting sort of, not, they're not conflicting accounts, but just ways we look at the SAS. So this TV series is just another iteration of it, which I think takes us even further away from what the thing actually was. It wasn't actually terribly important, the SAS, and continues not to be terribly important. But if you're a punter, you think the SAS is probably the most important, significant, effective, effective, yeah, yeah. effective part of the British. We're, 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 rubbish. Patrick, we know both from our, our podcast and you were actually out in the forms. We know that there were all kinds of balls ups going on perpetrated by the special forces. Uh, I think the SBS less responsible, obviously. Uh, and uh, and yet you would you might be led to believe if you listen to uh, some of the people who are out there, that they won the war. Yeah. Well, that's the argument. I mean, even Sterling, a contemporary, he basically said, you need me at El Alamein. History suggests otherwise. <laughs> Jess, are there people, do you think, from the 17th century, the 16th and 17th century, who we simply don't know about because they were involved in this kind of espionage work? I mean, is that part of the problem? Some people do disappear in the pages of history. Yeah, absolutely. And what I find amazing is if you dig deep enough, you do still find new stuff. And not just about war, but about, about anything. I mean, you kind of think, certainly in the 16th century and 17th century, certain subjects that... It, it's all been written about. But actually, if you sort of trawl through the documents, you do find new stuff and new angles and, and new bits and pieces. I read, um, I'd be interested to know what you guys think, but Yuval Noah Harari, you know, who wrote Sapiens and all these blockbusters. Before all that, he was uh, an early modern military historian. And he argued that uh, it's not until the mid-18th century that you get what he calls flesh witness accounts. So he said before then you have eyewitness accounts, which is people saying what they saw, but not flesh, flesh witness accounts, which is people saying how they felt. And I really agree with that a lot of the time in 17th century stuff. It's, it's often uh, very sort of matter-of-fact reportage. But occasionally there are things, and there was, there was one book about a siege that I found that really gets down deep into the bowels of a siege and is about sort of trauma and is sort of shockingly revelatory. But that wasn't, that wasn't published in order to sort of make the name of the writer who died by then it sort of came out um, as meditations and as sort of religious devotions but uh, do you think that I mean do you think people don't talk about trauma until the mid-18th century or do you think it's later or earlier later I would say I mean I, I take the general point that Harari is making which is that people didn't really talk about their 
you know, how it affected them, even in general terms, even in the way, even in the prose, you know, as this was happening. So there's any kind of emotion in their first-hand accounts, which is what you're getting at. And by the way, I should just kind of reference the fact you're being very modest here, Jesse. I mean, you've written this absolutely stupendous book, The Siege of Loyalty House, which, as we mentioned at the beginning, has been recognised by, you know, pretty much every publication in this country. I remember tweeting at one point, occasionally, it's not all about me, Jesse. I tweeted at one point, (laughs) it is utterly outrageous that you weren't on the shortlist for the for the Samuel Johnson or repackaged now it's not called the Samuel Johnson no you can't you can't you can't say that Uh, we can this is our podcast we can say what we (laughs) like (laughs) Sophie Gifford Prize the the Bailey Gifford Prize exactly you've been a judge I've been a judge we've all been judges it's um it's it's a lottery and also you can't criticize judges they've got an impossible job and um, the moment you mention a book and a prize in the same breath, it'll never win a prize. <laughs> it's not- true, true. Good point. So other books that have stood out this year who wants to you know raise the flagpole well in terms of some paperbacks that are out this year in terms of some stocking fillers for your good audience i would recommend giles milton's checkmate in berlin and also dan jones power and thrones i mean these were sort of recommended hardbacks from from the previous year uh but these books tick a lot of boxes in terms of just these people know how to tell a story but also make an argument and Dan's gone to the dark side, hasn't he? He's actually written a novel this year, which, which I've read uh, and enjoyed very much. And I also remember feeling sort of sneakily uh, jealous oh, that he so. that he has pulled off the the switch from writing, you know, really fabulous nonfiction to fiction. I've tried it myself with how can I put it, less success. Certainly in terms of how it made me feel as I was writing. I, I feel reasonably confident when I'm writing a history book, but try writing fiction. Jesse, have you ever given it a go? I haven't, but I read, yeah, last summer I read Dan's um, Essex Dogs and followed by Robert Harris's Act of Oblivion. And I thought, what am I doing? I want to do a novel. I want to do a novel. <laughs> and, then, and then I kind of thought, but what would I write about? And then it just, you suddenly realise how hard it is to write a novel. And I don't want to write a novel. But I love both those books. And yeah, I think, with, go back to Dan's Essex Dogs, what I really love is the way he does battle scenes at the end it's a battle Cressy and it's it's so on the ground and it's just one man's view of, you know basically on the floor you know mm. and the horses and the the mess of it all it's not sort of strategy and tactics and the big picture it's what it's actually like to fight in it and I love that visceral kind of you know yeah. man against man Patrick you've also gone to the dark side did you enjoy the process of fiction writing uh, I must admit I find it quite easy in the sense that <laughs> it's just Compared to writing nonfiction, where you know the fact is king, you're constantly in fear of getting the actual facts. Well, I am anyway as a former journalist. Yeah, I mean I'm ruled by facts and time. You know, I'm always a very much a sort of chronological writer. So it was actually a bit of a liberation to just make dialogue up. You know, the characters can do whatever they want, and it's terrific fun when the characters actually take on a life of their own. I know all people who write fiction say the same thing, and suddenly they do something unexpected, and they have a thought of an act. Or you suddenly think, hey, I'm going to get them to do this because that would be more interesting. But uh, you know, it is such a. We think that nonfiction is a is a lottery, and the prizes uh, go to a few. In fiction, it's even more the case. You know, the books I wrote, I wrote kind of for myself. I thought, you know, this is the sort of thing I'd like to 
read, and people were very kind about them, but they didn't sell anything like the numbers of the non-fiction yeah. books. So you, you know, it's it's a kind of fickle fickle business, as we all know. That's interesting. I always thought novels would fare better. Well, that was the kind of calculation that the, the publishers thought. Well, you know, this guy sells us, you know. Hey, keep it light. It's a Christmas party. <laughs> <laughs> healthy numbers, that which will just translate. You know, his his non-fiction audience will just immediately go and buy the novel. It doesn't work out like that. Well, it does for some people, but uh, Ben McIntyre hasn't tried a novel yet. Has I, I got a funny feeling Ben wrote a couple of novels before he started non-fiction, <laughs> but I might be wrong and. I wouldn't be surprised if they're reissuing those books no. because when you're on a roll like Ben is, you know, well, you've got to take advantage, frankly. I mean, as I say, I spent a bit of time with Ben last week and he was talking about, and I was a little bit jealous, he was talking about how pretty much everything's either been optioned. And more importantly, because I know a lot of people who keep saying, oh, this is option, that's option, but does it ever get made into anything? With Ben McIntyre, they're actually yes. being made into things. And the, the second series of SAS Rogue Heroes is, is coming out next year, or at least okay. it's being made well, next I think, year. Yeah, so we, I feel as if Ben is actually in the room with us. <laughs> well, that really is a Christmas party to go to Ben McIntyre's house this year. But, but it's, it's but the same with Robert Harris, who's now on his 15th bestseller. It's yeah. an instant bestseller. But, but quite rightly, because he, he keeps the quality up. And well, does he? I mean, you know, he, he goes up and down, does it? Because I'm just reading the um, V Weapons one, V2. Is it called V2? Anyway, it's great. It's fantastic. He really is back on form. But there were a couple of dud ones, weren't there? Oh. Where they just, the kind of endings were so lame. The one about the Pope, where that was... Oh, that was fantastic. Do you think so? Uh, no, I don't yeah. think it's in his canon. Well, this one, uh, this one, Act of Oblivion, is outstanding. And it's about two regicides, um, Edmund Whaley and William Goff, who were killers of King Charles I, and they went on the run into New England. And it's sort of a hunt. It's, again, it's, it's like escape. And um, we love that, don't we? Manhunts. It's very Butch Cassidy and Sundance, actually. And he, what's very good, interesting you talking about writing novels, you know, what he does is he sort of weaves back the story of the Civil War and all the best battles and all the best stories of it through the technique of uh, or the conceit of, of one of these regicides writing his memoirs while he's out in oblivion. So it's it's a clever novel. And it's- Sounds like Flashman. I think he's, he's nicked that idea from George MacDonald Fraser. No, but what, it, what this reminds me of and, and Robert Harris's success, at, let's face it, going from Rome to modern day, is how the skill in uh, historical fiction or fiction more generally is not about getting the history right that's a kind of light dusting of authenticity, I suppose, you need. And when you've got a, you know, a practitioner like Jesse of the 16th and 17th century, she can tell you what you've got wrong. But basically, it's about the story. So he can set his story, his cleverly plotted story, almost in any period. But he has, he's done his work. I mean, he has got the history right. Um, yeah, and the Dreyfus was fabulous. I mean, that was, I mean, I know quite a lot about the Dreyfus affair. And I thought he absolutely, it was as if he wanted to know about the Dreyfus affair, read the novel and then take it from there but you, all the kind of it's also getting the kind of feel of the time and, and he's extremely good at that I haven't read the, the Roman ones you're a bit of a- his book Pompeii which was out many a year ago was, was fantastic again you know you've got this great you know sort of Damocles we all know that Pompeii's gonna uh, erupt but he still manages tension uh, gets character and story right although I would say about his Cicero novels became too much of a hagiography he should have been more, in a sense, critical of, 
of Cicero. He fell in love with Cicero and the period, and there's there's sort of nothing wrong with that. But act of oblivion by you know most people's you know accounts is is absolutely back to form, shining a light on this this kind of great period. Although if you want to read a non-fiction book, I would recommend Killers of the King by Charles Spencer, mm. which which covers some of this and may have been an inspiration. Matt. Oh, definitely no, no. Yeah. yeah. I I interviewed uh, Robert Harris about his book when it came out, and, and he mentioned Charles Spencer's book and, and, and others and he acknowledges them uh, in his bibliography mm. so I, I think that's important actually for novelists if they are but also it's the fact that you know it's he's written a page turning novel you finish it it's important to flag up these other books because people just may want to pursue the sort of interest of the period or characters now I kind of have a feeling that um, one particular book's been missed out but I can't mention it so does anyone want to uh, well the other <laughs> the other elephant in the room is of course Operation Jubilee. No, as, which as, was out in paperback as, as this course, year. And that as needs, course, but uh, you set it up, and I'll hit it out the park. I mean, I've read Devil Dogs, uh, and it is one of the military history books of the year, clearly. Uh, and it's it's not a return to form because I mean, you've written a knockout book, uh, and what I would say about that is. A, it's a great piece of military history. It's incredibly violent. There's plenty of insight and argument. But I was quite impressed with, in a sense, the coda to the book, which is about their lives post-war. And it's incredibly touching, really. If you can just tell us uh, a little bit about that side where we've done a bit of the war war. I mean, in peacetime, what did you discover about these soldiers? I think one of the moving things about researching this book, Richard, is... Of course, it was a horrendous uh, war that they had to fight and, you know, really shocking detail. But it's the aftermath, as you as you pointed out, that's the most moving aspect of it. And in particular, meeting some of the families. So none of the guys who are involved in the story are still alive. But meeting some of the families was really moving because, of course, they can give you an idea of what the what post-war experience was like for some of these guys who fought through the Pacific campaign. In particular, Henry Sledge, the son of Eugene Sledge, who's written probably the finest mm. Second World War memoir um, with the old breed. And there was the most amazing uh, find, which has just happened on social media. And Jess, oh, you I, saw it. It. I, saw, I saw this today. It was yesterday. It was some actual footage, some grainy black and white footage of, we think, what, left-handed sledge loading the gun. and. I mean, this is, this is extraordinary because Henry Sledge, who's taken enormous interest in his father's book and uh, career, he had never seen this footage before. So someone contacted me on social media and said, have a look at this. I think, because you mentioned in your book that Eugene Sledge wrote to his mum saying, you know, I, I've just been filmed for, you know, by US Marine cameraman. Uh, and who knows, you may see this newsreel one day. So this guy said to me on, on social media, I found a bit of newsreel, which might be the actual bit of footage. I mean, what are the chances of that? So I had a look at it and I thought, it's possible. And I sent it to Henry Sledge and he responded immediately. That is almost certainly my dad and his buddy Snafu because... He used to load left-handed. He was actually right-handed, but he loaded left-handed. And you can see in the footage this guy loading a mortar left-handed. So it was really astonishing finds. Uh, and stuff like this really happens. We, we have connected with, you know, real footage. If we ever make a documentary about this, it'll be in there. You know, one of the most famous moments in the Pacific War. Now we've got it on film. That's amazing. I think that's why 20th century history that has archive footage it's always going to make good telehistory. And I, 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 I feel like a traitor, but I sort of find 
and I've done my fair share of talking head stuff with my cheetahs, but it's just not the same. You know, we do reconstructions and things and you've got actual footage. It's so immediate and vivid. Now, we must go back to Patrick's book, Operation Jubilee, because, um, you know, forget about buying a hardback for Christmas. If you want to save a few quid uh, and uh, stocking fillers, Operation Jubilee, which is the story of Dieppe, beautifully written, um, compelling take on a story we thought we knew a lot about. But, but you know, there's no such thing as definitive history. We, we know that there will always be someone else who will come along. But frankly, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a hard act to follow. Patrick. Yeah, well, that's very kind of you to say, Saul. So. Uh, but I think that's, this is really an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, World War Two. how many times have I heard people say to me, oh, you know, when are the people going to stop writing books about World War Two? I think it's probably true that there isn't any great untold story left to tell. But what there is, is, you know, every, you know, historiography is really as interesting as history, isn't it? Because each generation has its take on what's happening. As an old geezer, I get a bit annoyed about the way that British Empire is being looked at now, not because I'm a, a British imperialist or anything like that, but I just think, well, you know, the kind of essentials of the story, as I understand it, are true. And to have it sort of turned on its head doesn't sort of really seem to me to be doing much justice to the truth. But that's the way historiography works. Each generation sees things differently. So, yeah, the Second World War, it is the huge event of uh, the last, I don't know, you know, since the years of AD Anno Domini. Uh, I mean, as a great British imperialist myself, I mean, some of the books that come out, particularly uh, we have Robert Lyman and also Richard Overy, you know, they've written two great books in the past sort of year, 18 months. They basically said it was the British Empire that, in a sense, won the war. It wasn't Britain alone, of course. And That's, that's not the same thing as saying, you know, the Empire's a good thing. It's no, no. It's, but it is, uh, it's, in a sense... Well, it's related. There, there it's is related an argument that. that the the British Empire saved the Western yeah, world. Yeah, so if we didn't, if we didn't have an empire, we wouldn't have been able... We didn't no. have yeah. that interlap, that yeah. economic... I, I think your point, Patrick, which is that a lot of the good that came out of empire, such as it was, was inadvertent. You know, no, no, no one sort of set out to save the world. I mean, they did think that they were doing the right thing, the spreading Christianity yeah. and, and spreading civilization, but in incredibly sort of patronizing, certainly from a modern uh, perspective and racist uh, uh, stance. But the actual good that came out of it, yes, there was some. And so the idea that we, we're not allowed to talk about empire and we can't say that there is, there's a balance sheet, then we're going too far. And I, I, certainly, I, I think at least three of us in this room. Jess, what's your view I'm on frowning, that? aren't I? I? I don't think many people are saying you can't talk about empire. I think most people are saying we want to talk about empire and we just want to pick it apart a bit more and look at it in more detail. I mean, also... You're just talking about the British Empire. I'd like to make a little shout out for um, A History of Water by Edward Wilson Lee, which is probably my book of the year of all the books this year. We haven't got to that point yet. Oh, sorry. But that's about the Portuguese Empire um, in the 16th century and what he does really beautifully because it's so many strands and so many bits and the structure is just incredible. But it's basically a dual biography of two people who have very different views of the Portuguese empire, the expanded Portuguese empire. So there's um, Louis de Camões, the, the sort of Portugal's Homer, who wrote the great epic on the Portuguese empire. And it's sort of like a Jason and the Argonauts. You know, everyone else is a barbarian. Goa, all of it, it's sort of Babylon. And the Portuguese are spreading civilization. That's his view. That's still, if you go to Portugal, especially Lisbon, you know, the, he's everywhere, statues everywhere, streets named after him. Uh, and then the other view is, was an archivist in Lisbon called um, Damien de Goish. And 
he went to sort of Northern Europe mainly and he met Erasmus and the reformers and he was far more open-minded and he wrote about Ethiopian culture and far more sensitive. And I guess my point is, A, we shouldn't just talk about the British Empire, but also, you know, there are so, there are so many sensitive ways you can approach this subject without it being the sort of culture war and yeah. Yeah. Sort of yeah. well, quick, quick shout out to another friend of the podcast, although he hasn't appeared on it yet. And that's, well, at least a friend of a lot of us. And that's Simon Seabag Montefiore, who's, oh, yeah. who's taken on, you know, a ludicrously difficult task, which is a global history. Uh, and he's done it beautifully and he's done it very cleverly. I think which is to tell the story through the prism of family but also really to make you get a sense that empire is pretty much standard through the ages so we can talk about empire being a bad thing but empire and war is really the history of the world yeah i mean it's it's not strictly a military history title but it's and and it is subtitled as a a family history but let's not kid ourselves it's it's about power and, and conquest and you know he had the whole world in his hand, and he he has wrestled it to the ground. It's a it's a pasty, colourful book. I mean, it's he's delivered basically on a, on a sort of big project. But Devil Dogs is cheaper. <laughs> no, Devil Dogs. Devil Dogs is worthless. <laughs> but you don't mean worthless. No, not worthless. Just worthless. Um, on that empire thing, I don't want to be too serious here, but I, what's always strikes me about these, you know, the polemical uh, culture war approach to the British Empire, just to keep it simple, I completely take your point, Jesse, all empires are fascinating, they tend to do the same things, is that the people uh, who are being oppressed are actually not that much worse off than the indigenous people of the imperial power. So if you were a working class person in Britain, in 1830 or something, your lot was not actually hugely different from that of the people that you were allegedly or now being blamed for oppressing. So in that sense, I'm a Marxist. I see this as it's about money, it's about power, it's about capital. It's a fair point. I would disagree with that a a little bit because at that time, that's when uh, literacy rates uh, started to improve because of newspapers, etc. And also just diets. I mean, we were starting to have a bit of swagger and prosperity Although I sort of take your point pre that. Uh, but at that point, we were starting to, in a sense, become very prosperous, literate. Uh, so, 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 so while you were saying we were, we, we did sort of see ourselves as a superior. If you were a guy digging a ditch um, yeah. on the side of a road in Dorset or something, did you think, oh, I'm better than those people? Uh, just to, to kind of support your point, Patrick, I think that you, you've got this classic situation of the British soldier, you know, who came from tough background, let's not get ourselves, always yeah. did and still yeah. do, the British squaddy I'm talking about, going to far-flung parts of the world and thinking he was far superior to the indigenous population. So that there was that inbuilt sense of, uh, of superiority, even from a a guy who, you know, back here was was might have felt and might have might might have had good reason to feel that he didn't have a great lot in life compared to uh, you know the, the slightly wealthier classes. Yeah, no, that that is a, that is a good point. But, um, but you know, we're talking about a very small army, a very small section of the population. Uh, I mean, they were all. If you're going to be, if you're talking about global justice, it has to apply to everybody, doesn't it? It has to it has to apply to the person who's been uh, an agricultural labourer who's can't been thrown off his land, uh, someone who's given up a kind of reasonable job because of industrialization or not or a reasonable existence and has to go and work in a factory under appalling conditions. You know, the, the factory worker 
uh, in the dawn of the industrial era, his lot or her lot or the child's lot was not a lot better than the people that we were oppressing. That's the but no, but no one's blaming them, are they? In their books? Well, I think they are. I mean, they're saying the way you know that, that, that we Britain as a nation, even though that we personally have nothing to do with it, somehow bear culpability for it. When my only point is that ninety nine percent of the population didn't get any benefit from this at all. And we're not actually actively involved either preaching the, the virtues of an empire or, or actually getting any kind of, uh, having any direct contact with it at all. They weren't enslaving people. They were, you know, just the great mass who were providing the wealth of the people who were enslaved. Your, your point of view is particularly uh, pertinent, Patrick, given that you, you have a foot in both camps in the sense, uh, the Irish camp I'm talking about, you know, talking about colonialism, you know. Mm-hmm. So do you, you might have felt both a sort of class irritation and also a, you know, an anti-British Irish irritation, but you don't feel that particularly keenly uh, today, do you? No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of weird because my, my, I was brought up, you know, my mother's very Republican, she's still around, God bless her. But yeah, but I, I, I always have my own sort of views. I, I'm not a huge sort of Irish nationalist because, not because I didn't think it's a great idea, but I was always just appalled at how inefficient the Irish revolutionaries were. I wanted as a child, when my mother was telling me uh, all the joys of Irishness. But I thought, why don't they ever win? Why do these guys never win? You know, I yearn to have these um, Irish revolutionary heroes. There are some around, you know, but by and large, not not a great uh, revolutionary uh, tradition there in Ireland until the last minute. I and mean, even that's a sort of sacrificial thing. You know, the Easter Uprising is not a military success. It's just it basically creates an, a, a huge, you know, symbolic event, which then politically... Uh, charges the nation, which were not particularly pro Sinn Féin at that point. And then essentially the British give them the martyrs they need uh, to bring about the, the eventual overthrow of British power. There's an argument, Jess, that we've been particularly bad at revolution because we've already had one. And, and that, of course, was the English Civil War, the revolution that followed that and, and Cromwell. I mean, is there anything in that argument, do you think? We've done our revolution. Yeah, I think definitely there is. I think... The act of killing the king was so radical and so unbelievable. And in a judicial public trial that, you know, for for so many people, it was killing God. And it was so shocking that we don't ever want to do that again. And partly because we had an act of oblivion, i.e., you know, the title of Robert Harris's book, which was passed in 1660, was effectively a sort of um, reconciliation thing, sort of let's not have these words roundhead and cavalier let's try and get along but i think it is i think i think it, it meant that when france and uh, america russia had theirs we we were going to keep our monarchy and we were going to sort of fudge along in our constitutional way i know i think there's a lot to say about that i was wondering um patrick when you were talking about ireland whether you're catholic or protestant what do you think well i would guess catholic if you've got a uh, yeah. The mother's Republican, but yeah, I mean, sort of. You said English Civil War, but you know, obviously, the, it's British Civil Wars. And were it not for what English meddling in Scotland and then English, you know, meddling in Ireland, we would never have had the Civil War in, in England. So it's 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 a British thing. And well, they certainly weren't incompetent then in terms of, I, you know, the Irish Rising in October 1641 was the catalyst for the English Civil War, and it probably wouldn't have happened without it. Yeah. Because then I mean, everything I, yeah. went, everything Sorry. sort of was an argument about who would control the army that would be raised to put down the Irish. Yeah. I mean, I am a Catholic. I'm a, I'm a practicing Catholic. And uh, I think that's my identity. I don't really feel English. I don't particularly feel Irish. Do you feel European? Yeah, I feel European. I feel mm. Scottish. I mean, my grandmother was mm. Scottish. 
But I mean, I, I think it's kind of weird not to, you know, most of us have, we're mongrels, aren't we? We've all got a bit of everything in us. And it's kind of nice to have that. I think it might be worth mentioning, actually, Patrick, talking of mongrels, uh, and given our, you know, our day job, which is talking about the Ukraine war, that actually Jesse has a bit of brain blood. Do you want to mention that? Uh, yeah, although actually I kind of, um, I feel like I'm sort of jumping on the bandwagon. I, <laughs> just, I have a white Russian grandmother who I never met, sadly, but um, she was born in St. Petersburg. She's definitely Petersburg, as she called it, and she definitely thought of herself as Russian. Um, and I wish I knew more, and I'm looking into it now. And um, Helen Rappaport, brilliant historian. Actually, oh, yeah. another great book to mention yeah, after yeah. the Romanovs, which it's is terrific, about, yeah, and, and that's about the ex- Russian exiles in, um, in Paris. But uh, she's, oh, God, she's generous. She's helping me trace my Russian roots and is being brilliant. But all I had otherwise uh, was this one letter from, from my um, grandmother, Lara, she's called Lara, and both sides of her family, one was from um, Dnipro, as it now is, and one was from Kharkov, uh, as she called it. So born in Ukraine, and I sort of want to say she was Ukrainian, but Helen quite rightly said you have to be a bit careful about saying that because they probably wouldn't have thought themselves that way. And she always, you know, in this letter, she calls herself Russian. Obviously Russian Empire in those days, yeah. so they, they, you know, would have come into the into the broader mass. I, I'm sorry, but Lara's doctor wasn't called Shivago. <laughs> No, no, I wish. That would have been good. That, there's the book. Now there's a story. <laughs> but, but is it a non-fiction story, Jess, or a novel? You, you mentioned possible fiction. I mean, are you thinking of writing this up? I am thinking of writing this I keep, I, have, I sort of have various ideas about, as we all do, what's the next book going to be? And the com- there are many more commercial things I should be doing, but this is the one that's calling to me. And whenever I sort of promoting the last book or doing a bit of telly or whatever I just can't wait to get back to this research and you know you know that feeling when you're like that and you just have to you have to follow it up and it's not just that my grandfather who was English who married um the Russian was press attache in Belgrade and then Paris and then Washington in the Second World War so there's a lot there and he was also um he, he was sort of the man on the ground in Constantinople for Nance and uh dealing with the refugees and their honeymoon was actually caught they were they were interrupted they were called back during their honeymoon um because of the fall of Smyrna the sack of Smyrna and he had to deal with the refugees so as long as you can make it a bigger story than just this is what my grandparents did then um then I might yeah fingers crossed sounds like you've got the material for about three books there (laughs) so um get your agent on it Jesse and uh anyway look this has gone on um brilliantly I think well from our point of view I don't know about uh, the listeners but we've certainly had a lot of fun uh, we're going to have to wrap it up there. There's lots of other books we're meant to discuss, but we haven't got the time for now. So just to wish you all a very happy Christmas and a happy new year. So just before we go, um, we're all going to nominate our book of the year. You start off, Saul. Uh, well, I've already given the game away. It's Jesse's book, uh, The Siege of Loyalty House. Uh, in terms of my book, it could be the name of my autobiography, Abyss, uh, by Max Hastings. My book of the year would be In the Midst of Civilised Europe, the pogroms of 1918 to 1921 and the onset of the Holocaust. This is by an American professor, Jeffrey Weidlinger. And this is about the, you know, the continuing program of mass murder of Jews in Central Europe following the First World War, including very much the massacres in Ukraine. And, and what, it, what, what Professor Weidlinger argues very convincingly, I think, is that um, you know, the Holocaust wasn't just a sort of something, a, a terrible phenomenon that came out of nowhere, Uh, It was preceded by this wave of murders that paved the way to the Holocaust. It's a brilliant book. That's it from us. Thanks very much for listening. And uh, do get back to Battleground Ukraine. We'll be back with you, as usual, next week. Happy Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas.